Always great to be back at uh, True Grace, one of our home churches in the United States of America. Um, the first service, uh, right before the first service, uh, Rebecca, who works at one of your info centers there, she said, you look just like you do on the videos. And I said, thinking, sorry to disappoint you. <laughs> Not sure what I'm to look at. I just want to reiterate with uh, what Peter said about the graduation this afternoon. Frankly, if you haven't been to Freedom Session, you should just come to hear the, the stories, the testimonies. They're going to knock your socks off. But those of you who come, I encourage you to invite someone from the city you know, Christian or non-Christian, and just invite them and come with you just to say, hey, you're going to hear some stories you're going to just give you encouragement, but knock your socks off. Because they will, the authenticity of what God's done in their lives. It's not about Freedom Sessions, what God's done in their lives, because as Peter knows and, and as your church knows, now Freedom Sessions really not just about healing, it's about bringing people to the place where nothing controls you except the Holy Spirit of God. Amen. Not fear, not your past, not what other people think. And all that kind of stuff. That's not what I'm here to speak to you about today. We've got a number of questions from the Word of God, so I just want to jump right into that. And the first question is pretty primary. Do you love me? It's the question that every 16-year-old girl asks, privately ponders after dating the, the boy of her dreams for three months. It's the question the 22-year-old young man considers before he lays down three months' salary on a diamond ring. Do you love me? I, I know you say you do, but do you really love me enough to commit your life to me? Will you be there? Even deeper than that, it's the question that you've been asking your entire life, even before you were capable of crafting an original thought. Do you love me? Am I important? Do I have value? Do you love me? When the answer to that question is no, or perceived to be no, Humankind, all of us, choose one of two paths. We either seek to fill that void, to seek to fill and to find that love that we so desperately long for and need, or we medicate our hearts to numb the pain. It's universal. The question's universal, and our response to the question is universal. My question this morning is where did that question even come from, and why is it universal? Why are we fixated on finding out whether or not we are loved? Where did that thought even come from? John chapter 21, verse 15, I invite you to turn with me if you'd like. I know uh, the speaker spoke on this passage last week, but my sermon will simply build on his. It, it won't repeat it. When Jesus and his disciples had finished breakfast, Jesus went for a walk with Simon Peter, during which he asked him the question, Simon Son of John, do you love me? I find that amazing. The question came from God. The question, do you love me, comes from Jesus. The reason for our fixation on whether or not we are loved is intrinsically linked to being created in the image of God. Zebras don't ask the question. Lions don't ask the question. Elephants don't ask the question. Mosquitoes don't ask the question. Neither do fish and cats. Cats just assume they're loved. The question, do you love me, comes from the very heart of God. And in this case, Jesus added a qualifier because Peter was very, very vocal to my, and grandstanding, frankly, a lot of times on how much he loved Jesus. And so Jesus added a qualifier, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And assuming he was pointing to whatever the these referred to, there's only three options. One is, do you love me more than the fishing boats? 
The fishing boats represented his vocation, how he made his living, what he knew he was good at, his self-sustenance. Do you love me more than your vocation? Second option, it could have been to the fish themselves, but unlikely because I'm sure if as a fisherman you'd have an impersonal relationship with the fish. The third option was, do you love me more than these, the other disciples, your closest friends, the ones you do love? Do you love me more than these? Scholars spend hours debating questions like that and write books and they need to get out more often. Because really, whatever the these Jesus was referring to is irrelevant because another way you could phrase the question is this, am I truly the most important aspect of your life? You call me Lord and Master, but am I really? And do you love me? The word Jesus used for love was agape love. It is the highest form of love. It is unconditional and is, it is sacrificial. Agape love depends more on the character and the integrity of the person giving the love than the worthiness of the person receiving the love. Do you love me with that kind of love, agape love? And Jesus asked the question to Peter, interestingly, one-on-one. -on -one. Peter would make his bold assertions, I love you, Lord. He would make them in front of the crowds. But when Jesus wanted to ask Peter this very personal and intimate question, he separated Peter from the crowds, from the disciples, and he asked him the question, do you love me? Because it's a personal question. So let Jesus take you aside for a second, one-on-one, -on -one, and ask you the question, do you love me? And as he points out the competing affections in your lives, do you love me more than these? John chapter 21, verse 15, they finished breakfast. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, then feed my lambs. Jesus said to Peter a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Jesus said to Peter the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Why was Peter grieved? Was it because Jesus asked him the question three times? No. Because Jesus changed the wording. He downgraded the question. The first two times Jesus, was, Jesus asked the question, he said, Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me with unconditional and sacrificial love? And Peter replied, Lord, I phileo you, which is a second level of love. It's not quite as high, and it's a brotherly affection love. It's still important. He was saying, Lord, I, I love you. I have affection for you. Peter, Jesus would say, do you agape me? Lord, I have affection for you. I love you like a brother. You're important to me. And the third time, Jesus downgraded the question and said, Peter, do you then phileo me? Do you? Do you love me with the brotherly love? There's a grace piece here that I don't want to be lost on us here. It's like Jesus is saying, I get it. You're, you're human. You can't love at that level. I get it. You're flawed. Your, your love is dependent upon your emotions, your financial situation, your circumstances. I get it. I understand. But do you at least love me as a dear and intimate friend? Peter says, yes, I do. As a best friend, Peter, yes, Lord, you know everything. You know that I do. And Jesus says, okay, I'll settle for that. Isn't that amazing? I know you're human. I know you're flawed. I'll settle for that. And, but then he adds, feed my sheep. Now the feeding of the sheep is not 
what we get, how we get God's love. God's love towards us is not dependent on whether we feed the sheep or not. But there is a connection to us feeding the sheep and our love for him. Whatever the feeding the sheep would look like in your life. Did you catch the urgency in Jesus' voice? See, there's also the context. Why did he say, feed my sheep? This is John 21, post-resurrection. Jesus had appeared to the disciples a few times. He's about to ascend to heaven, and Jesus is looking for people who are willing to commit their lives, or at least a significant portion of their lives, to accomplishing and joining with Jesus to fulfill and accomplish the mission for which he came to earth, which was twofold. One is to die for humankind, and Jesus was going to take care of that. But the second one was to reconcile all humankind to his father and for that Jesus wanted other people to help him two years ago I married a couple whom I'm going to call Liam and Sandy their real names were Chris and Carla (laughs) both have been married before and both divorced they had biblical reasons and as I married them I married them and um, Carla had five children and Chris had none imagine the proposal for a minute Chris gets down on a knee pulls out a diamond says Carla I love you I want to spend the rest of my life with you the kids, hmm, take them or leave them, not really sure. But uh, if, they, if they have to be part of the deal, okay. As long as you take care of them, you look after them, you're responsible for them, you love on them, you do, do whatever, I just want you. Now, why would that proposal not work? I mean, Carla loves Chris. She also loves her children. Loving Carla would require to make what's clear, uh, most important to Carla also a priority on their own heart. Even if Chris doesn't love them as much, gotta make it a priority if you're gonna love Carla. Loving Jesus requires us to make what's important to him important to us. And that is the people around us that we live with. There's no other way around that. Ever wonder why the Apostle Paul put up with so much hardship? I was reading my quiet times the last little while. I was in the book of Acts. It's really amazing. On his ministry ministry trips, when he's obeying Jesus, when he is doing what Jesus asked him to do, not when he's fishing, not when he's golfing, on his ministry trips, Peter was slandered, he was beaten, he was tortured, he was imprisoned, he was stoned and left for dead on his ministry trips, and yet he kept pouring out his lives for these people that he used to hate. He used to despise them. What changed? What happened? Why did Paul so so quickly or so suddenly all of a sudden love these people so much? He didn't. He loved Jesus that much. And because Jesus loved him, he poured out his life for Jesus. I want to pause right there again and give you an opportunity to reflect on the level at which you love Jesus. Before you do that, let me tell you that this has also been very convicting for me because I can say I love Jesus and I'm pouring out my life in ministry, but what's he asked me to do? Do I love him that much? So here's the question. Do you love me? How much do I love Jesus? Do you love Jesus enough to risk rejection or gossip? Do you love Jesus enough to become a little bit more than a North American Christian? North American Christian is someone that lives, goes to church, throws a few bucks in the offering, goes to heaven. 
Do you love Jesus enough to sacrifice some nights out with other Christians and intentionally build relationships with non-Christians in the hopes that you will one day be able to share your faith and the willingness to actually share your faith because your friends and your neighbors will not go to heaven because they watch you mow your lawn. Your, your colleagues at work will not become in a personal relationship with Jesus because they know you go to church or don't swear. They need the words as well. Do you love people enough? Do you, you know where it's been convicting for me? I got a friend, been a friend for 30 years. He wants to spend more time with me than I want to spend with him. He wants to go hunting with me. Problem is, I love to go hunting with my boys, my, my, my sons. Do I love Jesus enough to be willing to go hunting with him? You know, I've also seen, I'm 60 years old, and in 25, 27 years, I'll probably be in heaven. The problem is a lot of the people that I hang out with won't. Do you know that in my judgment, I've been in ministry for over 30 years, I've come to the conclusion the reason why the church in North America leads so few people to Jesus Christ is because we do not have non-Christian friends. We have non-Christian acquaintances. But see, the problem is, if I build a relationship with my non-Christian friend and I begin to care about him and love him and know his grandchildren and know his wife and know his kids and know his whatever is going on in his life, I will begin to love him. And it will bother me, though, that he faces a hopeless eternity. And so I will begin to pray for him and I will begin to organize my life so that I might have an influence on him and then be actually willing to share. I don't actually believe that most people don't know how to share their faith. If you knew how to make pizza and someone asked you, how do you make pizza? You just tell them how you made pizza. We know how to share our faith. The way we allow, the way we function on that, the way I do, the way we all do, is we just choose not to become close to non-Christians. Because as they're at a distance, it won't bother me that they're going to hell. Do I love Jesus that much? Do I love Jesus enough to discover my own spiritual gifts? to leverage my passions, to leverage my, my income, to leverage whatever it is, my experiences, positive, negatives, my hurts. Do I care, do I love Jesus enough to be willing to leverage those things and offer them to him? Do I love Jesus enough to use my home, my cars, my motors, whatever it is we've got, my golf, my hobbies? Do I love Jesus enough to leverage those for his purposes and mine? Jesus fished, Jesus had vacation, Jesus slept. So did the apostles at some point. Do I love Jesus enough to spend time on my knees pleading with God to save an unsaved friend? If you don't love Jesus so much, there's no condemnation. Do you understand this? There's no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. Jesus doesn't want to condemn you. But there is a challenge if I don't love Jesus that much. Maybe Jesus hasn't worked in the core issues of your heart because you've never invited him in. Maybe there's another level of healing that Jesus wants to do in your life. Frankly, that's where a ministry like Freedom Session or counseling or something like that plays. It's hard to shut people up who Jesus has met in their pain and shame. Maybe what, if you don't love Jesus that much, maybe it requires some reflective journaling on all that Jesus has done for you. In the next 20, 25 years, I get to go to heaven. I, I, get, to, I get to go to heaven. That's pretty amazing. I don't deserve to go to heaven pretty crazy and then all the other things he's done since maybe it's an apology if you don't love Jesus that much maybe 
It's an apology. We come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm sorry. And acknowledge that Satan's been able to get us off seven degrees or 20 degrees of what our really purpose in life is about. Just sorry. Satan does that. Maybe we need to revisit our initial commitment to Jesus. What was your initial commitment to Jesus? For me, it was, Lord, take my life. And then he started to take my life. And I thought, oh, you know, I didn't mean that part. This is important because unless it's love, whatever God's been speaking to you about the last three months, the last year, 20 years ago, or or during this service, whatever God speaks to you about, if it's not, and there's going to be an opportunity to respond, a concrete opportunity to respond, but unless it's love that motivates us to do it, your commitment will all dissipate in the next two weeks, and it'll dissipate into that sea of North American narcissism, which we've all become accustomed to. I can't make a philosophical argument for why you should do that. I can't guilt you into this. I could, but it will last two weeks. And I can't promise you earthly rewards, although there might be or not. What happens tomorrow, what happens with what God's been asking us to do is based on love, his love for us and our love for him. And you don't even have to do it to get to heaven. It's called the, the problem of grace. We can probably squeak by and get into heaven without it. But we cannot do it if we love Jesus. Squeak by and, and not pay attention. I want to back up the story here. We've got a few other questions for us to consider. Context. Uh, we're just going to back up in that same chapter. The context. Jesus is risen from the dead. Jesus appeared to his disciples a few times. The disciples were supposed to be in Jerusalem, according to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, waiting for, to be clothed with the Holy Spirit from on high for power. But they weren't. They were fishing. Why were they fishing? Because that's what we do when Jesus tends not to show up or we think he's abandoned us or we, we just go back or if there's a time period, we, we just go back to what we know to do. John, uh, John 21, chapter three. Um, Simon says, I'm going fishing. The other said, we're gonna go with you. They went out, they caught nothing. So picture this, the, the, the verses will still come up. Picture this, they're going out fishing. They fish all night, they catch nothing. They're coming to shore. Buddy on the shore says, hey, catch anything? No. Try fishing on the other side. Duh, thanks, we never thought of that. Are you kidding me? They're professional fishermen, of course they thought of that. You fish, anyone that fishes, you fish on one side of the boat, of course you're gonna fish on the other side. You're gonna fish the other side of the lake if you don't catch anything, of course. But, Buddy on the Beach looks a little bit like Jesus. And they've seen this movie before. Back in Luke chapter five, there was another, I'm not sure where, but anyway, in Luke somewhere. They were, they were fishing, they didn't catch anything. Jesus says, let's try it again. So they went out, so they're thinking, I wonder if there's a buddy on the beach. So they end up throwing the nets back over and all of a sudden there's a tug, there's the fish. John says, it's the Lord. Peter says, see you later. Jumps in the water, starts swimming ashore. Swimming away, you gotta start thinking, wondering what he's thinking. Because although Jesus had appeared to Peter a couple times, they never had time to actually work out Peter's betrayal. There was that time, remember? Three times, betrayed him, and don't even know who you are. So he's swimming there thinking, oh my gosh, what am I going to say? Reminds me of, I became a Christian back in 1982. And my past was not a glorified past. It was an ugly past, and there was a lot of violence in it, fighting and stuff like that, alcoholism, a lot of stuff. I didn't, you know, I, I became a Christian at 19. I didn't didn't have a very good teenage years, so I can relate to a lot of that pain, but that doesn't define me. Anyway, so I became a Christian in 1982, and that's my background. Shortly after that, my wife, who's now my wife, we were, she, we were probably engaged then, we're sitting in her backyard late at night, and I hear some noise out in the front, so I come running out, and someone's breaking into my truck. So I start running after him, and I'm gaining on him, and as I'm gaining on him, I'm thinking, oh, shoot, I'm a Christian now. What am I going to do when I catch him? I can't beat the pulp out of him, because that's probably wrong, and so I'm thinking, fortunately, I was wearing cowboy boots, and I wiped out, and we didn't have to find out. That's probably how Peter 
that's, that's probably what Peter was thinking. What am I going to say to Jesus? And he gets on shore. He's dripping wet. Jesus is there. It must have been an awkward moment. Fortunately, Jesus breaks the silence. 21 verse 9. When they got to land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. <laughs> Why did Jesus ask Peter and the disciples to bring some of their fish? I mean, he started the fire, he had fish there. I mean, if Jesus went catching fish that morning, or if he just commanded the fish to come ashore, which I would have done, <laughs> wouldn't you have enough? I mean, if you bite Pastor Peter and his wife over for lunch, aren't you going to have enough food? You're going to say, hey, bring some stuff along. You're going to have enough. Why didn't Jesus have enough? Th think about that for a minute. Could he not have created enough fish? The, the time back when Jesus fed the 5,000, did he need the five loaves and two fish to feed the 5,000? I mean, if you were capable of taking five loaves and two fish, multiplying it, supernaturally to feed 5,000 men plus the women and children, couldn't you do it from scratch? Of course you could. Jesus didn't need Peter's fish. It was an invitation to be part of something bigger, something eternal. Bring some of your fish, which by the way I gave you, put them together with my fish and let's have breakfast. Do you hear the invitation? Bring some of what you have. Bring what you have. Put it together with what I have. And let's impact Lacey and Olympia and Washington for my purposes. Bring some of what you got. Put it together with what I got. Let me supernaturally infuse it and let's do this thing together. So what do you got? I've got a motorcycle. I've got a home. I've got leadership skills. I've got failures. I've got hunting. I've got a marriage, I've got kids, I've got pain, I've got scars, I've got dreams. What do you got that you'd be willing to bring? Well, what's he asking you to bring? Maybe what you got is an addiction. It's an escape behavior or bitterness or criticism, whatever it is that, that Satan's using to keep you out of God's mission. Listen, the Christian life, somebody say the Christian life is boring. The Christian life is not boring. It's challenging. If you, if you lead a boring, if, if your Christian life is boring, you're not being led by the Holy Spirit of God, no matter what charismatic denomination you are. There's something exciting about it, but we need God. It's not always easy, but it's meaningful. But sometimes, if we don't find life in that, we'll find life in something else. And a lot of the unhealthy behaviors that Satan offers as cheap facsimiles bring no life they're empty. Sometimes we have to bring them to Jesus so that he can infuse us. We surrender that so we actually become hungry for him. But there's more. The invitation is not only to have breakfast, breakfast together. You know, in the New Testament, you know, Jesus said that breakfasting was a verb. Let's breakfast together, just like in Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I will come in, and I will supper with him. Having a meal together is one of the most intimate things two human beings can do apart from sex. It is intimate. It's breakfast. Jesus is inviting, let's do this together. He wants us to do this together. He wants us to do life and ministry and everything together. One more story, and then I want to bring it home. In Mark chapter 10. Happened earlier. Jesus, Jesus had just, probably a few weeks earlier, Jesus had just predicted his death. 
That's the context, Mark chapter 10. He told his disciples, I'm going to die, I'm going to get flogged and rise from the dead. And they're thinking, ah, Jesus is talking an allegory again. He can't mean that. You know, it's got to mean something else. So we'll pick up, pick up the story in verse 35. So after Jesus told them, I'm going to die, James and John, sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. Did you get what's saying? I, I'm, I'm going to die, I'm going to go to heaven. And they're, they're calling shotgun. That's, that's, that's literally what's happening. Okay, you're going to die. Can, I, can we sit in your right? Can we be honored with you in heaven? It's crazy. And then Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said, oh yeah, we're able. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you will drink and, the, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. It's interesting to, see, to hear that Jesus said, the disciples said, yeah, we can drink the cup. And Jesus said, yeah, you can drink the cup. In fact, he said, if you follow me, you will drink the cup. The question you and I have to wrestle with is what's in the cup? Because that's terminology we don't use today, so we don't understand what Jesus was saying, but the disciples knew exactly what Jesus was saying. So let me culturally interpret that for you. The cultural interpretation of can you drink the cup means to drink the cup that Jesus drank meant to enter into the life, the journey, and the mission of Jesus to live for and experience all that Jesus did. So what was in the cup Jesus was holding 2,000 years ago? Homelessness, unpredictability, early mornings, late nights, ridicule, mocking, scorn, suffering, death, and sweet intimacy with his father. What's in the cup that Jesus is offering today? Well, there's a few things. Again, I've been in ministry a long time, been alive a long time. It's humbling to say that. There's a few things I've learned that are in the cup. And, and by the way, ministry is not about going into vocational ministry. This is ministry. Uh, you don't pay someone to be a Christian. Um, all of us are called into some level of ministry if we're called to follow Jesus. Some, some most, most people have to make a living and then, and then serve Jesus out of love for free. Pastor Peter and, and Dave and the rest of the guys, what we do is we, we, we temporarily or permanently, we cover their vocational needs so that they can do full-time, which what we do part-time, in a sense, right? We sell, and then, so they do the administration, some of the guidance, the leadership, that, that's, that's how ministry works. So it's not a this kind of thing, it's, it's a this kind of thing, okay? So what's in the cup today, the ministry cup? If we follow Jesus, if we follow Jesus, Here's the things I've learned. One is the calling to a higher standard, to live above reproach in, amongst people who want to reproach us. What I mean by that is people are always trying to discredit our witness. Romans chapter 14 says, let us make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Don't destroy the work of God for the sake of food or anything else. All food's clean, but it's wrong for a man to eat, eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that would cause your brother to stumble. And don't focus on the wine and the, and the meat here. There's anything. What it's saying is sometimes in the cup is the willful curtailing of some of the activities or things that we have freedom for. But some, for the sake of another, brother or sister or unsaved brother or sister. That's one. Sacrifice association is another one. The calling to intentionally make time to build a relationship with someone who would not necessarily be your first choice. 
and leverage some of your hobbies and some of your date nights or whatever it is, your family outings, your camping, whatever, leveraging some of those to also invest into relationships with non-Christians or new people that come to this church or whatever the deal is. I am sure that Jesus would have rather spent more time with his 12 disciples or maybe his favorite three than the crowds. And yet he also spent time with the crowds. And I am sure that at times it was difficult for Jesus to hear from Judas how God was moving in his life and how he was casting out demons. But he spent time with Judas because he loved him. It's in the cup. Long hours and late nights. It's true, ministry takes a toll on you. Ministry is not, you know, just being a Christian, a, follow, a real follower of Jesus is not an easy life necessarily. There's lots of benefits, but it takes a toll on you. There are sacrifices you make. And you don't have as much time for Facebook or, you know, reality TV show. I mean, in North America, these are the sacrifices we're talking about. You know, my daughter-in-law always reminds me, we bathe in drinking water. In fact, we, mow our, we, we, we what do you call it, water our lawns with drinking water. The sacrifices that we have in North America, this is where I talk about narcissism, and I, I'm affected by it too. This is the culture we live in. It's tricky. It's hard to be a Christian in North America, like a Christ-following Christian, because some of the so, things that we've learned and we taught, we demand, we, we, we deserve these things. They're actually privileges. They're not rights. It's because we've got American or Canadian passports. So the comforts and sacrifices we make sometimes are, are not really that great. And yet we still, so sometimes ministry, late nights. And it's important if you're going to be involved, think you still have a family. Don't make your family pay. Make some of your other things maybe prioritize your life. Fourth, spiritual warfare. Any examples? You know, we've found that Satan does not fight clean. He does not fight fair. He will attack your marriage. He will attack your family. But he will also attack your children. And that has been probably for us the greatest price we've paid is the attacks on our family over anything else. They call it spiritual warfare because in war people bleed. People get injured. There's real hurt sometimes. It's not just a pray once and you're done. There's discouragement. There's the what's the point? Does what I'm doing really matter? There's a sense of inadequacy. I feel that sometimes. There's rejection and criticism. It's kind of weird. You know, if, if you're going to become a serious Jesus follower, you're going to get criticized from some of your other Christian friends. You're going to be criticized from new people. You're going to be criticized from old people. It comes from both of you. You're criticized from others. You're criticized from some of your friends even, some of your family even. I remember years ago I was teaching on this text at a leadership training retreat. In my very draft notes I had written, teach them how to handle rejection and criticism. The problem is I don't know how to handle rejection and criticism. I'm not good at that. It's helpful for me to know, though, that it's in the cup. There's the agony of watching people reject Jesus, their answer to their only hope. Perhaps this is the greatest suffering that Jesus ever felt on earth. I don't know. I think it might be. To be bleeding out, dying for people who are not only mocking you, but they're walking away from their only hope of spending eternity in heaven. And there are faces... And memories, there's faces of people in my mind who I've poured parts of my life into hoping they follow Jesus and they've walked away. And you will too. If you follow Jesus, it's in the cup. So why do we do it? Why, why would I invite you to enter into the ministry of Jesus? Hopefully because of our love for him. Hopefully because of what he's done for us. John 3.16, for God's love, Ken. 
gave his one and only begotten son that when Ken believes in him, he should not perish but have eternal life. And you can put your name in there. And then because there's one more thing in the cup. Sweet and intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit of God. The greatest reward on earth and the most addicting earthly reward about serving the Lord in whatever he's called us to serve in, leveraging whatever he's given us to serve, the most addicting thing is the sense that when done out of a heart of love versus ought, it pleases God and he's drawn towards us and he fills us with what we long for and need more than anything else, his spirit, his presence, the Shekinah glory, his love, his comfort, his power, him. As you know, my ministry that I'm most known for is Freedom Session, a healing discipleship ministry, which is for those who are broken or have brokenness in their lives, which is about 90% of us. The other 10% are asleep. <clears throat> when I used to teach live, back in the day, we had 200 and some people in a room like this, and we'd be teaching Freedom Session. We had a, a level B band and an out-of-tune guitarist, a flawed leader, which is me. We had no Freedom Session workbooks. We didn't train our leaders properly. We were photocopying off their homework half an hour before they got here. And sometimes I would, I would be intimidated. Lord, what am I doing? Do, is this really going to work? I'd be intimidated. And so we did Freedom Session on Thursday nights, and sometimes there was any place I'd rather be than in Freedom Session on Thursday nights, but then I'd enter the room. And the worship had already started, and, and I'd, I'd get this sense, this feeling, this transformation in my own spirit that somehow God is drawn to this kind of worship where people's broken hearts, their broken worship, and people who on any given day, if they had a good day, could barely scrape into heaven, that he's drawn towards that, and then he founds pleasure in it. Yeah. And it would give me the strength and the love to go on and the hope. And it's not only freedom session, I have found that same passion in children's workers, in alpha group leaders, in people who are serving at the community kitchen, in, in some elders and some pastors. Not all, not all pastors, not all elders, not all children's workers, not all alpha leaders, but the ones that do it out of love versus ought. I have found that same passion and that same transformation. The ones who said yes because they love Jesus. One final scene. From this one's from the imagination of my brain. Not the word of God, but it takes place five minutes after I die. In this, I, I know the five minutes after I die, I know there's going to be a judgment on my life. Not, not whether I go to heaven or hell. That's based on my relationship with Jesus. But my, there will be a judgment on my life of what I did with what God's entrusted me. And it'll be the same for you. It'll determine our rewards in heaven. I think, I think, I'm not sure, but I think that our biggest reward is how close we are to the throne. It's going to be a very fair thing, you know, that's where the greatest might be the least, the least might be the greatest, so it's not what it looks like here on earth, but anyway, God knows our hearts, but anyway, that'll come. But in this scene, I'm, there's a circle of people, I, I just arrive in heaven, there's a circle of people there standing around, they're all milling around, the great cloud of witnesses, the Bible would call them, and uh, my grandpa's there. My dad's there, some of my college professors, some of the people that I've served and done ministry with. Maybe some of you will be there. And I notice there's some commotion around this person in the middle, and uh, he quiets down, and everyone else quiets down, and then I realize it's Jesus in the middle. And he parts the crowd. And he walks over to me. And he holds out his hand and brings me in for a bear hug. He says, thank you, Ken. Thank you for loving me and for pouring out your life for the broken people around you whom I died for. 
Well done. Enter into the kingdom of heaven. The glory the Father had for you before the foundation of the world. And I know I could be accused of grandstanding, but I'm not. There's a piece of me that lives for that. That's why I do it. It's the love. You don't have to do anything for Jesus to love you. He already proven that. There's a few things we can do to love him. We're going to have a time of communion tonight. Sorry, this morning. And it's going to be a little different. So I'm going to ask, no, don't do it yet, but I'm going to ask you to stand. And then you're going to be invited to come forward. But what you're, you're coming forward, you don't have to. This isn't for necessarily everyone, but coming forward, bringing your fish. What is it that you're going to offer to Jesus today? And seriously, offer to Jesus. The leverage for his kingdom. For some of you, it might be your life. Maybe you've never invited Jesus Christ to be leader of your life. Maybe you've gone to church a whole ton of years and never made that decision. Maybe it's some of you going to actually, your fish is actually going to be an addiction or some behavior that you use to escape pain or avoid conflict, whatever it is. Maybe you've got to surrender that so that he can lead you. But for hopefully a lot of us, is your fish, your golfing, your hobbies, your home, your marriage, your, your car, what are you going to offer to Jesus to be used for his kingdom? Not just to heal you so that you get a good life. It's your money. I don't care what it is. Jesus does. And it's an invitation. It's not a demand. And so what's going to happen is the band will start playing. We've got 15 minutes. There's no rush. When you come forward, you know, you, a lot of you know what it is. God's been speaking to you. Maybe he spoke to you 20 years ago and you put that on the shelf. That you just done your own life. Maybe it's the last three months. I don't know. Come forward, grab your communion elements, and then the prayer team's going to be here, and you're going to go to one of those prayer people and just tell them what your fish is, what are you bringing to Jesus. And then they will listen to the Holy Spirit, and they will pray an impartation and anointing prayer over you to fulfill that. And then you can go around to your chair, and you've got your communion elements, and you can take them, you can use, uh, partake of them alone whenever you're ready at your chair. If you want to come forward and grab communion and don't want anyone to pray for you, that's okay too. And this isn't for show. This is for you to have a moment with Jesus. Here's my fish, Lord. I bring, I bring them to you and ask you to join me. And I want to follow you into life and ministry experience all that you've ordained before the foundation of the world. I want to complete the good works you've called for me. And I want to do it well. Lord Jesus, thank you that you would have these stories in Scripture of very flawed people, but you're so unflawed. And I thank you that you, you didn't need our fish. You actually don't need us, but you wanted to use us. Somehow that glorifies you, but it also fills us with this amazing sense of worth and being loved. So Lord, I ask you to pinpoint in each of our lives right now, what are the fish you're asking us to bring? What's the commitment? What is it you want us to offer to you, with you, so that we can really make an impact here in Lacey, in Olympia, and in this state, in this country? Lord, there are going to be people around us that we've kind of just lived around and not on that next step 
And uh, if you've brought them to mind, give us the courage to bring them to you and then our faithfulness. So we invite you, Lord, this is your time to serve, to lead, to minister to us. In Jesus' name.